How are you doing today, John Schuler? I am doing excellent, even though you know I just went through a huge frustrating thing I just told you about, but I am awesome. Awesome. Ever tell yeah. you about Brian, his response every day? No. Brian, uh, mashed potatoes with googly eyes. Uh, yeah, I know you've talked about it, but yeah, no, I don't remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Brian, every day, Brian would come in. Good morning, Brian. How are you doing today? He'd go, another beautiful day. <laughs> there you go. Yes, it is, Brian. It's a beautiful day. Yes, yes. It actually is a beautiful day. Yeah, it's a beautiful day. You just can't, whatever it is, you can't can't let it derail you. That's all. That's true. It is. It's true. True story. So what else? What else is going on? Uh, Nothing. Just living the dream, right? That's right. going real well. Good. Real well. Glad to hear it. All right. Well, that's the Concrete Podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Yeah. Glad everybody's listening. Hope you're doing well. Take care. Uh, so a few things we get, we got our main topic we're going to hit here in a minute, Yeah. but I had an interesting text exchange back and forth last night with, um, Dale Cecil. I love Dale. Yeah. Dale. Yeah. Yeah. yeah Dale is killing it and he's having really good success with Kodiak. He came to a class and he found religion. We got him on the path to, uh, to doing things the right way. Dale was, for the first time ever, casting an SEC GFRC piece, but he it's a three-dimensional sink, and normally he pours in an inch or two, then he puts his backer mold, then he continues to pour. And yeah. he's like, I'm just going to put it all in at one time. I'm going to you know, attach my backer mold. Will that work? I'm like, absolutely. That's how I do it. Yeah. And um, I gave him some tips, and one tip is you angle your casting table up on one end, so one end is higher than the other, and you pour from the low end. So you start pouring on the low side of your form and you let it fill uphill. So as it fills up, as the form fills up, it's pushing the air out ahead of it. Yeah. Versus like on a teeter totter. Teeter totter. But it's like you're pouring in a valley and it's filling up the valley slowly and it's pushing the concrete uphill. Right. If you do it the opposite and you pour at the top of the hill and you let it run down into the valley, it's going to trap air. So you don't want to do that. You want to pour in the lowest spot and let it fill up. And the same thing with rubbers. Really, any anything that you're trying to reduce any entrapped air, that's how you do it. So that was one tip. And he's like, great, great, great. And so he sends me a photo. And I don't know, he had 100 screws holding the backer mold down. I'm like, it's good, bro, but you need to drill some like eighth-inch air holes yeah. in there in areas where there's no way for the air to get out. He's like, uh... <laughs> <laughs> he's like okay so i haven't heard from him today yet on how it went but um he had to take the whole thing apart to drill some air holes but that's the other thing if you're pouring sec gfrc into a multi-part mold and air can get trapped it's called an air lock and it doesn't happen always but it does happen and that's where you know the concrete's filling up and it gets to a point where the air is trying to escape but it can't escape and it keeps the concrete from filling up the rest of the way right there right and it happened to me in a class once. Were you in that class, John? I don't know. You know, we normally, we do sinks and we pour SEC GFRC and we have a backer mold that we put in. And same thing, we, we suspended it and I'm getting ready to pour. I'm like, oh, we forgot to put the air holes in to let the, the air get out. I'm like, eh, we'll be okay. And we pour it, demold it. There's a big hole right in the middle of the sink where air got trapped and it couldn't get out. So... It does happen. It doesn't happen always, but it does happen. So it's always a good idea to put eighth inch 
breather holes, whatever you want to call it, air vents, whatever you want to yeah, call so it. Yeah, I just referred to them as breather holes. Yeah. And if they're small enough, like eighth inch air holes, concrete will seep up through it. You don't have to plug them. Back in the day, right. I used to have like little rubber plugs. And when I saw concrete come out, I put a rubber plug in it. Anymore, I just don't care. Because by the time, once you get it filled up and you set that mold flat. So that's the thing is you're filling up the, the concrete. At some point, the concrete's going to get to the very top of the form on that low side. But because you have it at angles, it's like, you know, it, it's it's not filled to the other side. So then you have to lower your table down. And I usually use like a car. Um, I have a jack that I use. Or you can use a forklift or you can use straps, a pulley, whatever. Or just muscle if it's not a heavy piece. But you let your form down so it's level. And then you continue filling. But once you let it down flat and you fill it up all the rest of the way, a little bit of concrete might seep out, but it just stops. If you're not agitating the form, it's not going to keep coming out and you're fine. Any thoughts, John? That's true. No, it ends up plugging it. They really, between the fibers and everything, they really end up plugging themselves. Yeah. 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 And it, you know, depending if you're using melamine or something, it's sucking the moisture out anyway. So they turn into their own plugs. Yeah. Unless you make the holes too big. Some people have bigger holes than others. This is true. And this sometimes true. plugs don't fit. Yeah. Well, all my years in prison. <laughs> <laughs> like a hot dog down a hallway, right, John? That's right. Well, I try not to fill from the low end. <laughs> That's terrible. Oh, God. That's funny, but terrible. <laughs> uh. Well, uh, it is what it is. Now, you know, you hit on something important that we're kind of just uh, glazing through pretty quickly. But, you know, I didn't I didn't think about how many people actually do the opposite, set something up, pour from the high point. You know what I mean? And and yeah, and that's just not the way to do it. The easiest way to remove air is just what you're talking about. And it's a big enough mold, say a bench or something is. Just that, yeah. Again, I refer to it as a teeter-totter, but whatever. Teeter-totter, I guess, means you have it in the center. But no, just set it up in a way that as you're filling and slowly lowering the cast down to the point that the two high points end up even. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. clearly the way to do it. Exactly. Yeah, you know, years ago, so much of the things I've learned, I've learned from people that work in other industries. And... um I had a buddy who still does this. He's, he's a professional prototyper and he does like small run production, mainly for the military and for um, really high end medical stuff. So some of these companies, they'll build like some imaging machine that has this shroud, but they're only going to build 10 of them. And each one's like 5 million bucks for the machine, right? Um, yeah. They're not going to, they're not going to produce tooling for injection molding or whatever, because the tooling is crazy expensive for, for five or 10 shrouds. And uh, so they'll hire him and he, he'll build this crazy rubber mold and, uh, and then he'll, he'll pour resin or inject resin into it. But I was there and there was this company in Scottsdale, Arizona. I used to make these Gatling guns that could go into like an SUV and the top would open up and a Gatling gun pops up and really, oh my God, amazing. On a turret, spin 360, like the secret service has these in, in their vehicles, right? They're yeah, insane. Like the expendables. Dude, yes. And I think I think anybody can buy one if you get like a, you know, the stamp for it for the fully automated weapons. I think anybody can own one of these things. And I think they do have wealthy clients that that do have them. But anyways, 
where I'm going with this is my buddy was hired to make this giant O-ring for the turret for this Gatling gun system. And um, so I, was, I stopped by his shop one day. I'm like, hey, what's up? And I went in there and he had this really cool mold set up and he had it tilted at an angle. And he was injecting the, the rubber compound in the lowest point and letting it fill up. And then he had an air hole at the top. And the air, you know, when the rubber came out there, then he knew it was full and there was no air in it. And that's when I learned that. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, oh, and I'm like, why are you doing it that way? He's like, oh, because as it fills up, the air pushes out. And when it comes out there, I know there's no air in it. And it's a perfect O-ring. Dude, mm. yes. I was like, would that work with concrete? He's like, dude, it works with everything. It's universal. You know, I'm like, oh, yeah. So anyways, that's how I learned that. And ever since then, that's what I do with concrete. When I'm pouring SCC, GFRC, tilt your form up, pour from the low side, bada bing, bada boom, there you go. Simple, simple. Simple, simple. Although it doesn't seem, yeah, if you've never done it before or it's not intuitive, I can see it's not so simple. Yeah. Yeah. And then mix is going to matter, you know. Um, so I'm pouring right now tile for my shop. For the I'm doing these triangular tile in the bathroom here at my new shop. And I have these molds set up, and they're quarter-inch thick tile. Quarter-inch thick concrete tile is freaky when you pop it out how thin it is, right? But yeah. um, I'm making, I don't know how many tiles. I'm making thousands of tiles, I think. It's a bunch. I'm pouring Maker Mix, and there's not one pinhole in any of these tiles. Not one. I've popped out probably a thousand so far. Not one pinhole in any of them. But if you're doing SEC GFRC and you're using uh, more, let's say, conventional or traditional or legacy, whatever, however you want to call it, GFRC mix has a polymer in it, whether it's liquid or powder, you're going to have a lot of error, even if you go through the steps. And really, a lot of these steps I used to do when I was using those mixes to try to minimize the error. And they help to minimize right. it, but they don't eliminate it completely. So, you know, if you're using that method and you're making things that you want to have very little error in, the mix is going to matter. And you're, you're going to want yeah. to use something that doesn't contain the ingredients that are in training air in your mix to begin with. So arguably, I guess what you're doing right now is you're making tile that from some people's perspective is not concrete because they don't have pinholes. Because they don't have pinholes. Yeah. So yeah. <clears throat> I had a guy call me today. Uh, that, de that debate's always going to go on. You know what I mean? Well, it's, it is what it's, it is. Whatever. It's a stupid debate. It's not even worth discussing that debate. Um, cause it's not a debate. It's an opinion from somebody that's trying to sell you some crappy concrete. I had a guy call me today that is making a ton of samples for flooring, right? He does flooring and, mm -hmm. um, he casts thousands of samples for these sample boards that he, he gives to architects, designers, whatnot. And he's been using different bagged mixes. He's tried CSA mixes. He's tried, you know, all these different things. And, um, he's tired of it. He's tired of all the problems because he gets tons of air and he has to slurry everything, and it's all these steps. Yes. He's making thousands of round circles, but it takes 10 steps to get them to where they look decent, right? Yeah. And so he called me up That's today, and I was explaining to him. I said, listen, dude, you're probably using polymer mixes? He's like, yeah. And I was like, they probably look like plastic? He's like, yeah. He's like, I don't like the way they look. Um, I said, listen, let me explain to you what we do. Kodiak Pro and the mix that we've developed, I've been doing concrete for a long time. I taught the first class on Chief RC in the United States. I've used those mixes for many, many, many years. The mix that me and John have developed and that we sell does not contain polymer. 
It is as true a concrete as you can get. We're not putting glue. We're not putting plastic in it. This is concrete. But through, you know, through particle compaction and gradation, we end up with an extremely dense mix that's very good at self-degassing air. So the problems you're having with all the air and all the slurring and everything, this completely eliminates that 100%. You're not going to have that problem anymore. And number two, that plasticky look you're getting with the polymer, you're not going to have that. So if you're wanting concrete, real concrete, not fake concrete, not plastic concrete, but you want concrete, then this solves your problem for you. So he's going to call Joe and place an order and do some tests. So we'll see how it yeah. goes. Yeah. Good for him. I look forward yeah. to hearing from it. Yeah. Because so far, I mean, I have to admit, I, I still, I truly enjoy seeing people's projects and what they're doing and what they're, let's say, able to do from where they've been while using materials that I'm just going to say are better suited for what they're trying to do. Yeah. So it's well, pretty the, cool. Well, the best... <clears throat> For me, the best feedbacks from people that have a, a long history with those older generation mixes. Somebody like Simon Leeton, he, he posted a photo yesterday on Instagram, which I shared. But, um, yeah. you know, he's used the polymer mixes for, for well over a decade. His, his company is called Concrete Works Bermuda. He's in Bermuda. And um, he's used those for a long time, but he switched to Maker Mix and he's shipping it down to Bermuda and having phenomenal results. But when you see somebody post the results are having when they have had a vast experience with the other less generation of mixes, you know, that older generation, that's what really is. Um, it makes me feel good. Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I love getting new people that are new to concrete. That's great. You know, they're, they're bypassing all that struggles that we all had with the air and the uh, slurring and everything you had to go through. So they're, they're bypassing that. But uh, the feedback from people that are used to that and now they don't have to do that anymore. That's what I love. But, you know, let's uh, let's get on to this podcast. You ready to have a conversation? I'm ready. Okay. What are we going to talk about? Today, John Schuler, we're going to talk about how to properly mix concrete. Right. Which seems like, where, how's there a conversation about that? But there's a lot that goes into it. And there's a right way, and there's a wrong way, and there's a hard way, and there's a long way, and there's, you know, all these different things you can do incorrectly. And, you know, you've had some calls. I've had some calls. I had a guy, I cannot remember who it was. I need to look through my text. But um, essentially, he was hand mixing maker mix, and he's like, dude, this stuff makes amazing. Like, the pieces are, are, you know, phenomenal, but it's really hard to mix. And I'm like, what are you doing? And he was putting all his dry in yeah. <laughs> and mixing it all at once. I'm like, no, 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 no. I was like, listen, yeah. dude, put in, if you're hand mixing with a, with a column mix, handheld mixer, put in half your, put all your water in. So let me tell you, I'll, I'll give my brief discussion and you can take over and go through the whole, the whole process. Sure. But I'm going to talk about hand mixing. If you're hand mixing, which is what I'm doing right now with these tile, every day I'm mixing and casting these tile. I put, I weigh out all my liquid, which is water and ice. So I weigh out my liquid. I weigh out my TBP and I weigh out my pigment if I'm using pigment, which I am for this. So I put that in a bucket. Water, oop, sorry. I put water and ice if you're using ice. I'm actually not using ice right now. My shop is pretty cool, so I'm not using any ice. But water, uh, TBP, pigment in the bucket, and I mix it up. Then I take my dry. I have that weighed out. My maker mix is weighed out, so I'm doing 35 pounds of maker mix. So I pour about half that in. 
into all the liquid, mix it up. Really, really soupy. Great. Pour in another half of what's left over. Mix that up. Pour in the rest. Mix it up. Mixes so easily, so quickly. But had I done the opposite, had I just dumped 100% of it in there and tried to mix, that water would have, you know, mixed in that very bottom, but that top would have choked it. And then you'd be yeah. fighting it. And it'd just be, you know, balls of mix and all hard and clumpy and doughy. And finally it would wet out, but you'd have to fight it. You'd have to fight it. Yeah. I think people go that route. They, they just try to dump it all in in an effort to save time. They think, oh, I'll just, you know, I'm not going to, I'm not going to layer it in. I'm just going to dump it all in at once and I'm going to save some time. But in the end, it takes way longer. It's way more difficult. And as you and I were discussing earlier, the, the viscosity of the mix isn't as good. If you, if you layer the mix as you're mixing, you add the dry in, mix it, add some more dry, mix it, add some more dry and mix it. You end up with a much more fluid mix with a lower level of, of TBP. You don't have to add oh, more yeah, TBP. Less. Right. Less necessity of load. Right. Exactly. And so anyways, yeah. that's my advice. If you're hand mixing liquid TBP pigment up front, oh, Jesus, I got this microphone like in a weird spot today, liquid TBP and pigment up front, pour half the dry, mix it, pour half what's left over, mix it and pour the remainder, mix it. And you can do all three of those in less than a minute. Then you let it flash set, get it mixed really good, scrape the sides of the bucket, scrape the bottom, mix it again, let it set for 10 minutes, set a timer on your phone, come back, mix it again, add your fiber in, gently mix it in, cast. Bada bing, bada boom. I mean, I, I'm literally, from the time I batch to the time I'm done mixing, ready to cast, is maybe, maybe 15 minutes. And that's with the 10 yeah, minute slate in the middle. The slate. That's what I'm saying. Right. Yeah. yeah. Because it doesn't take more than a couple minutes. To, to batch. So, um, so maybe 15 minutes and I'm ready to cast. So it's quick. Well, you're right, man. It yeah. is quick. Yeah. All right, John. Well, so I, you discuss your, your side. Well, I, I mean, I do get the question a lot too. And along with that question, it's usually guys or all over the place on how much TBP they're using. Like I'm at 85, I use 70. I, you know, why would you use this? Why would you use this? So I'm going to digress all the way back to the beginning. And there's lots of information out there but the simplest way, if anybody can grasp, and I know we've talked about it, you know, that how a plasticizer actually works, how it works. And without going into the whole electrostatic, you know, hindrance and so forth and so on, the, the simplest way to describe, which then leads to the most efficient way of loading your mixer is the plasticizer, in essence wraps around every particle in a mix. And when it does that, it's like magnets, right? You know, the, the two positive or the two negatives. And by doing that static, steric hindrance or repulsion, whatever you want to call it, it's that that stops or prevents all the small particles from globbing together. And that's how we end up with more flow with the least amount of water. Now, all that seems like, yeah, yeah, I get that, John. That's why I use, use plasticizer. Okay, so that's how, in a very, very simple mode, how a plasticizer works. But there's steps to make that more efficient in a mix because, as you're just describing, and this is why I've always been against, you know, putting plasticizers in a mix to begin with as a dry material pack and then having it load at the end. So when people try to put the plasticizer with all the dry ingredients, 
it's very difficult for the plasticizer to do its job, and that is to get around every particle, and it's going to miss particles. So the best way to get at the most efficiency is two ways. And we recommend probably the least efficient, but it hopes, helps people more than loading all at once. And that is, we've always talked about putting you know, 70% of your dry materials, wet that out, and then loading, you know, but you know, half of the rest of your materials. But the reality is mixing the mix in, as you just described, I'm going to call it three lifts. Now, whether that's a third, a third, a third, a half, 25, 25, or anywhere in there between, it's the idea that you're giving the plasticizer the optimal chance to A, we call it being wet out in the liquid, but really to wrap around all the particles efficiently prior to adding more materials, you know, so forth and so on. So when guys, I get this a lot when they're like, well, I, I don't, John, I was reading on the forum where so-and-so says they're using 60 grams, man, I'm using ice. I'm doing everything I can, but I'm at 75 or 80. And that's when I go, okay, but See, that's when people get locked onto the temperature. It must be because I'm going too hot. Well, yeah, that's part of the balance. But the reality is, and then I dial them back, like, listen to me. Here's what I want you to do. Take your 60 grams, load it up front with your water and your pigment per way we're described. And then I want you to load, let's say, a third to a half of your dry ingredients and then wet that out. They're like, okay. And then add half of your remaining, you know, somewhere in that zone. It doesn't have to be perfect. And then wet that out and then add the remaining. Even if you take the two remaining and cut it in half, I don't care. But what I'm saying is just don't how you know, don't make your plasticizer struggle. And that's as soon as they do that, that's that's when I get people down into the the range that we're using, meaning, you know, 55, 60 grams kind of zones rather than the 75s and 85s. And, and um anyway, so yeah, Plain and simple. How do you make your plasticizer more efficient? How do you get your mix wetter? How do you get the least amount of blending time? How do you cut the struggle on your tooling and yourself, especially if you're hand mixing or, you know, bearing down or choking out your mixer? It all comes back to the same. It's knowing your materials, understanding your materials so that you're getting the most bang for your buck out of your plasticizer. Because you know, I'm just I'm, I'm looking at that. Let's go back to a cost thing. Well, if I can use 20% less plasticizer and actually get a better mix that mixes out faster, more efficiently, and easier on my materials and easier on my mixer, easier on me, then it just makes sense. Yeah, and it's counterintuitive. You know, slow is fast, fast is slow. People are trying to speed it up, but in essence, they're slowing it down. They're totally making the slow. process a lot more difficult than it needs to be just right. by by dumping it all in up front. You're talking more about uh, so when I when I said I do it in three lifts, three layers, three whatever, that's for hand mixing. And that's hand mixing using a single blade collo mix. But if I'm using right. my IMR 360s, say I'm doing a 10 bag mix, I'll hold back two bags so I'll put 80% up front. And then that's a little bit different because I'm not putting my liquid in because if you put your liquid in it'll leak out the uh, the chute because it's not super watertight. So right. I'll, in that instance, I'll put uh, let's say I'm doing a 10 bag mix. I'll put eight bags maker mix in my, in my mixer. I'll put all my TBP. I'll put all my pigment and I'll turn the mixer on, let it blend in the TBP and the pigment just so it's mixed in. And then while it's mixing, I'll add in all the water 
and it wets out super fast. And then I'll add in another bag, let it mix, add in another bag, let it mix, turn it off, scrape the sides, mix it for a second, and then let it slake for 10 minutes, add my fibers. And me personally, it mixes beautifully like that. Is that how you do it, John? Yeah, but but the same idea. Technically, you're still doing it in lifts. Yeah. You know, it's just that you're and, and there's two caveats here. In the mixer, at least this is the way I look at it, even with when I'm loading my 120 plus. I can walk away from that thing. So here where I said, again, for easy conversation, I'm going to say a third, a third, a third. But in the mixer compared to the bucket, if I put a third of my materials and all my water, then I risk (laughs) wet stuff leaking out through my outlet. You know, my, um, you know, my, uh, whatever we call that. The The trap door. The the trap door. Yeah. Yeah. The chute. Yeah. Yes. So you risk that. So how do you compensate for that? Well, you put a little more dry materials, uh, but you still want all your plasticizer and all your water. Now, the only thing, and again, see, these are the little things. For me, because again, I know how the plasticizers work, not that you don't. I don't Actually, like I don't, blending John. it into Honestly, the dry materials. I have no idea how they work. Right? Zero. <laughs> so, <laughs> so what I'll do is still, I put the dry materials in, same thing, somewhere around 60 to 70% so that I don't have leaking out my chute. But then prior to adding the TVP and the pigment, I just reach in and kind of scoop a hole. You know what I mean? Scoop a hole into my dry materials. I put it into that. And then when I load my water, my water kind of immediately goes into that hole so that it's hitting the plasticizer right off the bat. And then as we've all seen doing that, the amount of water sits on top of the dry mix and it's getting to the plasticizer quicker than if I had it all pre-blended into the dry materials. Yeah. Same, you know, six half dozen, the other, uh, in this case with a mixer, you're always meaning a, a big mixer. You are going to, it's just nature of the beast. You're going to lose a little bit of the efficiency because you have to, you know, there's no way around that, but I'll still say the same. When I load the rest of my materials, I let the first wet out and then I'll add about half of what's left of my materials and then I'll add either half of that last half and then my final load still with the idea that I'm trying to allow the plasticizer to be the most efficient it can by getting to every particle that it can and not quote unquote choke it out. Mm -hmm. That's all. Yeah. And when you do that, yeah, you'll, you'll find that a, Everything wets out quicker because the plasticizers, as I keep using the word efficient, the plasticizers working more effectively and um, it's less stressful on all of your, on the mixer itself. Yeah, I was going to say the reason I dry blend in my pigment and a TVP, I mean, I could add the TVP separately, but I just blend it in, is I've had some experiences many years ago, it's been a long time, where if I put the pigment in and then add water, I've had the pigment form balls or hard pieces that don't disperse completely. And then when I cast my piece and I demold it, there'll be these specks of like really dense color that can wash out. And it's just, it looks horrible. And so I learned a long time ago, just blend in your pigment before you add your liquid and get it to disperse evenly. And that problem never happened again. So that's why I do it. But uh, yeah. Well, but see, you're going back on the history of materials that you're used. I know, but it's just one of those things you you get burned on it and you say, never again. I'm not going to make that mistake again. Agreed. Well, and that's one of the, I was going to say, is one of the beauties with 
these materials is the way they're designed effectively to increase total dispersion of the pigment mm-hmm. by, by design yeah, rather than That's why I designed it. it that way. That's why you designed it that way. I know. No, it's, mm-hmm. so I mean, these are the little cool things because you're right. Everything you just said, I, I'm sitting on the other side. You can't see me. I'm shaking my head. I'm like, yep, I've done that. I've seen that happen, which is another reason why when these materials came to fluition, <laughs> um, I wanted it to, you know, we wanted all the ability for the pigment and pigment particles to be as spread out and even as possible with the least potential for clumpage. Yeah. And there's a couple ways of doing that chemically that I'm not going to disclose. But Okay, because you sound like you're about a, to. I'm, I was going to... I was, gonna I was about right to. You're going to go, beep, yeah. beep. Hey, something... You know, when you're using beep, beep. <clears throat> yes, John, I do know. Uh, something that when you were talking, was I think about a conversation we had at the hoedown was there was a person there that was struggling mixing because they were holding back their plasticizer. Remember oh, that? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he yeah. was, and we've all done this. You know, at some point in your your career, you're like, well, and a lot of times the advice from a long time ago was like that. They'd like put in half your plasticizer and mix and then add a little bit more as you need it and add a little bit, ease up on it. Yeah. The problem is the plasticizer takes some time to do what it needs to do. And so, A, you're really fighting the mix. And B, You'll think, well, this looks pretty good. And then you walk away and you come back and it's totally soup at that point because now it's actually done its job and it took five minutes, but now it's water, you know, and it's segregated. So um, you want to talk about that? Well, yeah. Remember there used to be, I can't remember who said it, but remember you'd load all your sands up front and then the water with the idea. Yeah. Remember that like the water was supposed to wet out your sands first and then, you know. I think the idea was... The sand was absorbing water. So if you could preload right. the moisture into the sand, it wouldn't suck it out of the mix when you're trying to mix. Right. But that wasn't the problem. No. <laughs> no, that wasn't the problem. But anyway, I get it. And then the other thing is most of this older way of thinking was also, you know, let's say revolving around older plasticizing technologies. Yeah. You know, the old melamine technologies and and so forth and so on. But when you get into the newest high ends of polycarboxyl based technologies, you know, at some point we have to let so much of those old ways of thinking go because those now make these far too inefficient for what they're supposed to do. Yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. So what you don't want to do, what you don't want to do is you don't want to chase the mix. You don't want to be, trying to ease up on it. You want to get it dialed. And if you keep copious notes of what you're doing, you should be able to say, oh, okay, so last time I used 71 grams, it was perfect. I'm going to do 71 grams a day. All right, great. 71 up front, not 50 and then no. 10 and then five. No, no, 71 up front from the very beginning. And you're not going to fight that mix. But if you try to ease up on it, it's going to be a horrible experience. You're going to, you're going to hate mixing concrete if you do it that way. Well, and that's just going back to the, the basic chemistry. When you're adding a plasticizer late in the system, there's no way for it to efficiently, or let's say, let's use the word evenly, evenly to now disperse itself amount amongst all the particles as it does in the very beginning. So instead, you know what I mean? You, it's it's going to fight 
what's already out there. And then sometimes your polycarboxyls will just end up on top of each other and they're just not, they're not doing what it wants it to do, which means now you're adding 30, 40, 50% more than what's really necessary. And then when that happens, yeah, now you, you walk away like, Hey, I got it. That's perfect. And then once you go break the slake, you're like, Oh my God, why did all my sands fall out of this thing? Well, because it all kicked in way too late, you know, two, three minutes after when it was supposed to. So no, it's upfront. Upfront is the best way to do it. Don't chase your mixes, dial in your temperature. Don't chase your mix, add mix. And it, and I would say a minimum of, I'm calling them lifts, three different lifts, you know, don't add it all to the not even 90% of the dry materials. I would say somewhere around 60 to 70%, um, or come down a little bit, unless you're in a, in a mixer, like we said, nobody wants it leaking out the chute, but yeah, that's, that's the way to do it, man. Plain and simple. And that's not just from a wetness of the material. That's also the best way to disperse the pigment. So you, you don't end up with clumping and dry spots or weird, um, floating, of your pigments, you know, like carbon float and all these kind of things. That's you, how you avoid all these things. Yeah. I agree. I do agree. Cause we did, we've lived it, but it's one thing to, to, you know, to do it and then get an understanding. So you don't chase it. Yeah. Uh, too, too many of the calls I get is still chasing it or per what I said, you know, I mean, plasticizers are not an inexpensive ingredient. So if you're finding yourself, consistently needing to use 20 or 30% more of what's truly necessary because of the way you're loading. Well, you know, save yourself a, the time, cause it really does save time and then save yourself the money and materials by changing your loading Yeah, and updating your loading procedure. Yeah, I agree. So the next thing that ties into this, and again, this came from the hoedown was we had a guy there that his shop has gotten pretty cold, but he's still using 50% ice. I'm like, yeah. dude, don't do that. No. As the seasons change, you have to adjust your ice. When it's yeah. hot and your shop is hot, use more ice. When your shop gets cooler, use less ice or no ice. Right now I'm using no ice in my shop and I'm fine because it's pretty cool. But in the summertime, you better be using ice. But yeah. the whole thing is getting a digital thermometer, infrared thermometer, checking your mix and keeping it in the range. And you and I talk about the range of being anywhere between 50 to 60 degrees in that mm -hmm. range. I personally like, it's all preference. It's funny how we all get very uh, preferential about things, but I like 60. I like it a little bit warmer. You like a little bit colder. In my yeah. opinion, because I'm pouring SEC, I see it start to gel slightly the colder it gets. And Correct. when it's a little bit warmer, for me, it flows beautifully. And I'm not, because it, the process goes so fast, when you're pouring an SEC piece, it goes really fast. You're not spraying a face coat and brushing it and waiting, none of that. So being a little bit warmer, I'm not concerned about the reduced work time because once I'm done mixing, I'm putting it in a form, I'm done. So that's fine with me. I don't care. So 60 degrees for me is great. Um, but my point is, now that it's starting to cool off for North America, for our listeners in North America, it's starting to cool off here, you need to start lowering your ice and being aware of that and checking your temperature and being sure if you're still doing 50%, you check your mix and it's 40 degrees, bro, that's way too cold. You, you need to use close. less ice. Yeah. No. In fact, it, that'll, that'll get guys 
I mean, you'll think you need more plasticizer because you gel- think you need more water. Yeah. yeah Cause it's because gelled up. It's just gelled up. It's not, it's not, nothing's actually kicking off the way you want to. Uh, to me, the, the minimum would be 45, 50 degrees. You go lower than that and yeah, you're just fighting it again. So at that point, if you're in a really cold shop, you may want to use tempered water, you know, slightly warm and get it back up into that 50 to 60 or 55 to 60 degree zone. That's optimal, plain and simple. That's optimal. Even if you start getting cresting under 55 degrees, you're running right on that edge of, and when I say gelling, I don't mean kicking off. I just mean the mix itself, the, the plasticizers, it's just not efficient at those temperatures. Yeah. True temperatures, you know, 55, 60 degrees, even cresting over 60, um, but much over 65 then you start going the other direction and that's when the materials want to start, meaning the uh, hydration-based materials, want to start grabbing onto each other. That's when they want to start producing entronite and, you know, start truly, quote-unquote, kicking off the mix, yeah. which then you're fighting it there. Yeah. Yep, 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 yep. So no, that's the way, man. <laughs> that is the way. It, what, what is the... Uh, I was trying to, what was the Mandalorian? I haven't seen the Mandalorian. No, you haven't? No. Oh man, that's, that's a fun series. No, I haven't seen, I haven't seen any movies in a while. I'm going to go see the, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon or whatever that one is. I need to go see that Scorsese, but, uh, but no, I haven't seen any movies in a while. I need to. I am, however, I am going to Cirque du Soleil this weekend with my girls. So that's going to be fun. Are you really? Yeah. It's an... Wichita? Yeah, they do traveling shows and they have one coming to Wichita. I bought tickets like six months ago. And huh. um, so they're going to, we're going to go to that this weekend. So it's going to be fun. Yeah, we did that when I, we went to Vegas for Jaden's uh, national shoots. I can't remember. It was the Mirage or something like that, but it was the Beatles. Beatles. Ah, yeah, yeah. I saw the yeah. one in Vegas. It was the Fire and Water show. This was World of Concrete maybe 10 or 12 years ago, went with Buddy Rhodes and Susan. We went. We sat oh. front row, Paulo Petit, Buddy, Susan, and me went. We bought tickets well in advance. We had front row tickets. And it was one where they're falling from the rafters like 100 feet into right. the water and they had scuba divers that would like give them air so they wouldn't come back up for 15 minutes, whatever. And there's fire coming, you know, like into the audience, like these huge fireballs. It was crazy. Yeah. yeah. No, they're neat shows. They're a lot of fun. But I'll still say, because we did the same thing in Vegas, I'm one of those people that then I start getting frustrated because there's so much going on. I feel like I'm missing parts of it. Yeah. Like, oh, did you see that? No, I didn't <laughs> see that because I was looking at this. Dude, That's what about amazing. that? Did you see that? No, I didn't see that because I was looking at this. What about that it's... new dome thing they have in Vegas? Oh, yeah, yeah. Is it That's called the dome? Neat. What's it called? What's it called? I don't know. Or the, no, what the sphere. The sphere. It's called the sphere. Yeah. 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 Dude. Next time, World of Concrete, I need to go ahead and, and book my travel for that. And I need to go ahead and book the sphere because I definitely have to go see something there. Yeah. That thing looks well, crazy. Well, whether you're seeing it on the inside or outside, it's pretty. I think I watched it when they did the, um, I think, New Year's, right? The fireworks and everything last year at New Year's. Or, or excuse me, I apologize. Fourth of July. That's what it was. I don't think it was New Year's. It was Fourth of July. But it was really neat. It was neat how they whatever they've set up in there to make all the panels come alive. It, 
sometimes it looked like a big eyeball and then it had fireworks and all this wildness and really neat, neat. I can't imagine a concert <laughs> inside of it though. Yeah. You too is playing right now huh? with the visuals. And so they're playing live and they have these crazy visuals. Elon Musk was talking about it uh, last week. He said he went to all you two and said it was the craziest concert he's ever seen in his life. Um, because it was a great concert, but the visuals just pushed it over the top. It was bananas. Well, see, I would almost think that would be distracting, but I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I just, again, I can't imagine being inside this huge wrapped around sphere. You see what I'm saying? Front, back, side. Oh, boom. And at the same time, a concert going on that I'm trying to kind of be engaged with. Cause you know, you, First of all, I don't go to concerts, but I imagine if I was like at a Taylor Swift concert, I'd be up there dancing and oh, you're singing. You're a total Swifty. <laughs> <laughs> I would be, man. I love you, Taylor. I can't even think of a song right now, but <laughs> I would be singing it. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so having all that going on, I, I don't know. I think I'd, I might get lost. I think you would too. Yeah. So I think this is going to be a shorter podcast because I got things I got to do. We're sitting here. We're sitting here doing a podcast, but in my mind, I got like 50 things in the back I got to get to, including demolding tile and casting more tile, but there's a lot of other stuff. But I do want to hit, we have the workshop coming up uh, for Concrete Design School. It is the Fundamentals Workshop, December 4th and 5th. And right. we've had more registrations for that. So I've seen some nice comments about that too. It's great to see some seasoned guys Really love the idea that, you know, an actual fundamentals class talking about real fundamentals rather than trying to twist it into something advanced. So yeah. that, that's pretty cool well, to see that <clears throat> embraced. You know what I mean? Yeah, I think it's important that we do this. It's something that we haven't done in the past. Our focus for what year is this? 2023? Our focus for the yeah. last uh, 18 years, I guess, has been advanced. You know, we've, yes. we've been teaching the most cutting edge, whatever, whether it's fabric forming or GFRC or, yeah. or injection casting, or, yeah, you know, exactly. all these different things. We've been teaching the cutting edge of concrete and we have not focused on the fundamentals. And the problem with that is the people that are coming into industry are learning via YouTube. They're learning via outdated books that exist out right. there. And they're learning through maybe, um, sales sales pitch seminars from material distributors but again the people teaching right. the quote unquote class or workshop they're salesmen they don't do this for a living and so right. they're getting a lot of bad information and so they're starting off on the wrong foot they're spending a couple of years doing things the wrong way the hard way they're struggling why is it so difficult and by the time they end up at our class they're very frustrated and um, and they've learned a lot of bad things that they have to unlearn. A lot of bad habits, a lot of bad techniques, processes, whatever, such as chasing plasticizers, you know, all these different things. They've learned things the wrong way. And this really, this whole idea came about from talking to Sean Albright about getting people upstream instead of, you know, trying to course correct two or three years into their journey. Let's get them at the very beginning and show them the right way and cut out all that struggle that they, that most of the people experience that come into this industry. So that we experienced that yeah. everybody experienced, you know, it's one of those things, but it doesn't have to be that way. And so this fundamentals class, which is our first is really an effort to help mitigate those, those, you know, initial learning curve struggles. How do I build a form? How do I use this tool? 
You know, how do I do the, the most basic things that we assume when you come to a class, you know how to do it. We make that assumption. Yeah. Um, like loading a mixer. Exactly. How to load a mixer. Um, or, yeah. Or mix in a bucket. Yeah. How to template a countertop, you know? Yep. So these are all things that we're going to cover in this one and a half day class. It's going to be a fast paced class. We're covering a lot of stuff, but we're covering how to do it the right way. And so that is concretedesignschool.com, December 4th and December 5th. We're about, you know, a little over three weeks out right now from it. So, yeah. And if you're coming, just so you know, I'm trying to install HVAC in the back before then. It may or may not happen. We'll see how it goes. So bring a jacket, bring a hat, because it might be, might be cool in the get shop. Cozy. It might be you a little, little cool. It might be a little cool. There you go. Yeah. Right Hand warmers. <laughs> Hopefully I get that, that HVAC hooked up in time. But we have heat and air in the uh, the meeting room. We have heat and air in the front office. So, you know, you can come in and warm up and then hop back there. But, yeah, it's going to cool. be a good time. Anything else, John? No. I, well, I, we talked earlier. I, I mean, this is part of the podcast. I wanted to just finish out with a thank you to everybody with things that are going on. You know, as we walk into the holidays, holidays I guess I get a little nostalgic, but – Number one, we have Veterans Day coming up, right? Yep. So this is just knowing full well we have quite a few customers that are that are veterans. So, you know, thank you for everything you've done, right? That's allowing us to do what we do. And yeah. also thank you to our overall customer base. I, again, being nostalgic, I just happen to be reflecting back on three years ago, for me anyway, getting ready to walk away. And uh I'm having fun again, man. I'm getting fun, you know, being on the edge again, coming up with new ideas and new chemistries, innovating things that I was ready to walk away from. So, yeah, it's 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 a cool ride. Yeah. So that's all. I just want to throw some thank yous out there. Yeah. Well, Veterans Day is a good one. That's a good one to say thank you. I was I was telling you there's this great Curb Enthusiasm episode, which I love. Uh, <laughs> where, where this guy just returned from from Afghanistan and uh, Larry's going to dinner and this guy's coming and everybody's like, you know, thank you for your service. Thank you for your service. And he gets to Larry and Larry's like, hey, man, nice to meet you. <laughs> <laughs> and everybody's like, Larry, you didn't thank him for his service. And Larry's like, what? I just uh, I said hi. I said, nice to meet you. And uh, so I always think of that. But that being said, both my grandfathers served in World War II. My my grandfather on my dad's side was a uh, Army Ranger. He was in Battle of the Bulge. He was a POW. He he went through a lot in the war. And uh, it is definitely something that on Veterans Day, uh, it's very important that we acknowledge the sacrifice that everybody's made and that allow us to live the life that we have and the freedoms we yeah. have and to have the opportunities we have. I mean, even Kodiak Pro, the opportunity we have is directly related to the sacrifices that people have made to uh to defend our way of life so thank you we appreciate you yep yeah thank you very much yep cool all right buddy well let's wrap this up and uh we'll do another one next week sounds good yeah i'm heading off to do some blending for a little while cool buddy right on adios amigo adios <laughs>